I actually tend to believe that poverty can breed a really high degree of resiliency. You know, your, your circumstances are constantly changing. Yeah. And so you have to figure out how to adapt. And I think that that has really helped me a lot in life in terms of being the kind of person that welcomes change more readily than the average individual. Hey everybody, it's Charlie Epstein and welcome to Business in Booths at the wonderful Center Square Grill in booming downtown East Longmeadow, Massachusetts. So this is exciting. Uh, a lot of people aren't familiar, I think, with Holyoke Community College and the work that's being done here, but let's back up and how did you end up here doing this work, which is amazing and we're gonna get to it, but what kind of led you down this path? What was it about you know, being in the school environment, teaching, and now running an entire college? Well, it's really interesting because I actually believe college saved my life. And when I talk to students, I talk about that in terms of the value of education in my own life. It's, um, you know, growing up poor and, uh, you know, a family with low means. Um, my, my father was a bartender. My mom was a waitress when we were younger. Eventually, she studied massage therapy and made a career change. But... Um, you know, when we were poor. And so growing up, you know, when I started to think about, you know, how do I actually create a life that is different and sort of evolving from what my parents had. And I knew that college was the answer. So I, I worked very hard to try to get to college. And were you that's the when first I, to graduate? I was, I'm a first generation college student. Wow. And uh, not only the first to get a degree, but also then the first to, you know, go up and ultimately get a doctorate. So, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. That's yeah. Amazing. So, so I, I started off in the corporate sector in IT and, uh, that was, that was sort of my pathway. My first degree is in mathematics. So, uh, I was looking at, you know, a field in, in IT and I just love technology. And so I was working in the corporate sector and then I landed this job that was, training folks in the corporate sector on technology and it was a national project so we travel all over the united states and the u.s protectorates and eventually i was promoted to run the project wow and and this was for which company this was for CompUSA corporate yeah. when uh, yep uh back in the late mid mid to late 90s and it was exciting and fun and um, and it brought me to so many places and you know having never traveled as a kid much it was so much fun to just get a chance to experience the United States uh, to also uh, teach and uh, to also get a chance to just understand how the business world works so wait a minute I gotta back up because mathematics yeah so how does the child of a bartender and a <laughs> massage Right. Yeah. Person yeah. Massage therapist. Yeah. Get yeah. thrown to mathematics. What was it about math and, you know, the Einstein in you? What was that? 
I, I was the kid learning magic tricks. My dad was a big oh. card player, so he would always teach me uh, cards, and and it was a lot of fun. Texas so Hold'em or Texas Hold'em and poker, gin rummy. Um, there was just yeah. anything that was a card game so I played. That's the story about your mom delivering. Yes. While they were playing. Cards, yes, exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, no, I just I loved it, and when they said, "Well, what do you want to study?" I didn't have any models to look to, so you know they said, "Well, what do you like? You know, what are you good at?" How was this in junior high or high school or college? This or? was junior high, high yeah. school. Yeah. Um, you know, getting closer to senior year, and uh, and so I said, "Well, I really like math. I like math. I like psychology." But I ultimately chose math as my major. I eventually got a master's in educational psychology. So, you know, you you get you you, you, can't you ultimately. Keep a good girl down. <laughs> Right? <laughs> you, you ultimately, you know, will get all your passion. So that's what I tell students. I said, you know, ultimately, um, if you actually follow your passion, that's going to be the best career move because you, the money will follow, you know, if you focus on channeling your passion and energy into something that you're good at. And then... Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's talk about that. Cause yeah. That is the hardest thing for people. I don't care whether they're affluent, whether they're poor, middle class, I see it, the hardest thing is for people to actually choose their passion. Like my, my yes. son's a senior right yes. now. And he thinks he's finally found, you know, music, musical production, he yep. wants to pursue that. And I said, but go for it. Um, and I was an economics major at Colgate, right up the road from you, right? Yep, that yep. lived in the theater. Yeah. Because I was going to go to New York and be a starving actor because my mother was an opera singer, but my father was a businessman. And he said, yeah, that and a cup of coffee will get you what. <laughs> but I always had that passion. And I tell clients of mine, I said, you know, if your kids have a passion, support that. And what are they worried about? Well, but how are they going to make a living? So how do, you, how do you inspire kids on a campus to actually pursue their passion without worrying about oh, I better get a job to make money and then suffer in a job that I can't stand. Yeah, you know, it is it's so hard. It's also interesting that that same tension between your passion and financial stability and security is something that is a topic of conversation every decade. Right. And yeah. in terms of education and the conversation with parents, because every parent wants the child to be financially well off, you know, whatever but, that means. But for miserable. That. <laughs> right, right, right. Make money. I was miserable. You'd be miserable, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. But I tend to believe that if you follow your passion and if you have a desire then to make more financial means that you can be creative in the pursuit of that, depending on the professions. Yeah. Now, there's certainly certain professions that naturally lend themselves to more financial security than others. Um, so depending on what your passion is, that might be an easier conversation. Um, but, you know, if you're an engineer, then, you know, right out of college, you're making a, a decent wage yeah. and um, as opposed to uh, maybe an artist um, or a social worker or, you know, some fields that, you know, don't pay as much. But I think that there's still a lot of flexibility in being creative to figure out how do you make a living. Um, but we should make sure that we're encouraging people to follow their passion because ultimately... 
you want people to be happy. Yeah, right? so, so who inspired you? Let's go back. You know, there you are being interested in math and you go off and study math in college. Yep. Where'd you go? I went to Marist College okay. in New York. First family member to go to college. So who, who inspired you? Who are the people in, in, in your life that kind of gave you that inspiration? Well, one of the most significant, significant experiences I had was when, um, when I was about eight, uh, we were evicted from our apartment. And um, at the same time, my uh, parents separated and my mom took us to live with my maternal grandparents. And in doing so, they lived in a more fluent neighborhood. And so suddenly I was exposed to a different group of people um, and in doing so, I went to a different college. I mean, uh, excuse me, a different high school. And um, in fact, actually, when I first went to the middle school, it was actually elementary school when we first started, I actually tested uh, below average in a couple of areas because the school systems were so different. Mm. And that was my first lesson in even thinking about the economics of the world. And uh, that there were... Yeah, that there were different wow. standards and different neighborhoods. And, you know, now uh, our commissioner uh, of higher education here talks constantly about, you know, zip code as destiny. And, you know, I, I feel like I was fortunate to zip code as destiny. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, that, um, you know, the zip code determines a lot of hmm. uh, what kind of life you're going to live <clears throat> and what kind of challenges that you're going to have. And so, um I had a chance to switch zip codes. And in doing so, I just got exposed to different people, college educated people and, and uh, a but school system. But did you system. feel intimidated? I mean, because my initial reaction oh, yeah. listening to you, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking here you were in, in a neighborhood that you didn't know you were poor, but you were poor maybe, yeah. Yeah. right? It was yeah. just, okay, this I is I knew us. when we left. <laughs> right, you gotta have that contrast, yeah. right? Yeah. And then suddenly, well, first of all, just, separating that had to be painful yeah yeah definitely right i mean did you not see your dad after that for a time no no uh he was in our life but he wasn't living with us okay yeah so then you go to an affluent neighborhood yep. and it's like somebody pulled the curtain back yeah yeah bit. uh more affluent but still middle class right right, but right. Still. yeah um and it was yeah it was different um now it was hard as a kid though because the same time you know then you know you're shopping at Kmart and, you know, kids have three weeks of unique clothes and, you know, you're wearing the same thing and, sure. you know, just elements that you still realize that you're poor, but, you know, now you've got a different contrast, right, to, to think about that. But I and, noticed that... And how that, are you treated? I mean, did you get treated by the kids? Well, that was interesting because I am biracial. So my father's African-American and my mother's white. And so that in and of itself was also a challenge. Like there were racial tensions within our family unit. Yeah, what year is this now? Uh, so I was born in 72. Okay. Yep. So, um, so you know, 80, eight, if you're eight years old, we're in 80, 81, 82. Yeah. The Reagan era. Yeah. Whoa. Well, just a decade before, you know, it was illegal for my parents to get married. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, so dealing with racism, I, you know, I saw racism within my greater family unit, you know, the extended family. And, I bet. And uh, so that was, that was tough. Um, and then I go to a, 
a middle-class neighborhood that was primarily white and so uh, the contrast and difficulties of that. Although I did actually eventually sort of find my place in that and feeling like my contribution to the race discussion was perhaps the fact that because I was lighter skinned that I could penetrate certain circles more easily and then have the conversation, hey, my dad's black. And it's like, wait a second, there's some cognitive dissonance because if they did oh, I not love that word, have, cognitive dissonance. If they did not the Borg. <laughs> yes. yes. And if they didn't have um, an acceptance of non-white families, then suddenly they're like, wait a second, we like her, but she's half black. You know, so I would be able to have a conversation from a different perspective than perhaps someone that is 100% African-American or a different mix, or you had different a, you skin had a doorway tone. in, and then it was like you pulled the carpet out from underneath yeah, somebody, right? Yeah. When they were like, you yeah. look African-American to me. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I would get mistaken for Latina, for Native American. Um, so a lot of different ethnicities, which I think happens to a lot of biracial kids. So what? I mean, because a lot of kids would get crushed by that, right? Yeah. So what was this fire that kept you moving forward in the face of all of this adversity? Well, I actually tend to believe that poverty can breed a really high degree of resiliency. You know, your, your circumstances are constantly changing. Yeah. And so you have to figure out how to adapt. And I think that that has really helped me a lot in life in terms of being the kind of person that welcomes change more readily than the average individual mm -hmm. and um, and being able well, to it's pivot. Almost, it's normal for you. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's sort it of is. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. This, is, this is normal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> a good day is adversity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. up, I'm waking up to a good day. Yeah. Like, Something's uh, going to throw in my face. So I do you, like a good challenge. Yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> oh, well, hello. We'll, we'll get to this in a minute. <laughs> so you lived how long with your grandparents through high school, junior high and high school? Yes, um, we pretty much stayed, we were still living in that house, even though eventually my grandparents passed away. Uh -huh. And then, um, then I went directly to college. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that like? That was, that was a, a typical experience for a first generation college student. Um, so fine typical because so I remember the first day we showed up. So it was a big deal to get me to college. And fortunately, I was able to get both Pell Grants and a presidential scholarship to pay for the majority of my education. Wow. But I remember getting there. And for my family and for me, it was like, wow, we got her to college. She's going to be a college student. Yeah. <clears throat> and then my roommate was talking about having to get books for classes. And so I go down to the bookstore, oh, no. not even thinking oh, about no. the fact that they cost money. And so I'm shopping for all the books and I get to the register and they said, your books cost $400. And 
And I was like, well, like, does how, how does that work? Does you know? Because I, I had no idea. I had no idea. I know, right? I had no idea, <clears throat> and you know, we just didn't have it, and so that was tough. And you know, to I mean, my, did, did you know, you have to give the books back. So um, I eventually, you know, went back to my parents. I believe my uncle helped us out, and you know, people kind of cobbled it together. But that was an eye opener, and I even didn't buy some books. So, you know, I couldn't afford them. So you you kind of figure out a way to get through the classes uh, wow. with uh, borrowing them from the library, borrowing them from other students, and uh, you know, making your way. But um, but that that's an example of what a first generation college student does. A student that has college educated parents, they're preparing them for all aspects of the educational experience. For a first gen student, you're figuring it out as you go along. Yeah. Right. And so so that was that was difficult. Um, and especially when, you know, I think pretty much my dad thought he would be able to drop me off with 20 bucks and, you know, we would be good. And so, um, so I, I really have a soft spot for thinking about, you know, how do we make sure that we continue to support first-gen college students? Because we still have a, a significant number in, yeah. in our region of um, individuals who are college age that um, haven't, don't have parents that have gone to college. Absolutely. Yeah. So you make your way through college Grades are grades are good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately, my dad got sick right after college. I was right. I was going oh. to, I was going to go to graduate school to be an industrial organizational psychologist, a psychometrician, analyzing data in that regard with my math degree. Yeah. And. Uh, then my father got sick, and so I decided that I would stay with him, and it was a good thing because he passed away the next year. Wow. And so um, so that actually is what, in part, led to a different career path. And so I had an opportunity to work on this training. I was, I was hired to teach software applications in one of the CompUSA stores in White Plains, actually, in New York. And then um, they sort of yanked me off off that for this project. So I would I would be teaching in various cities. Every I'd be gone for a week. I'd come home. I would do laundry, and then they would send me to another part of the United States. And it was a lot of fun at that age. I loved it. And you were then, how old then? I was probably about 20. 24, yeah. so twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. It was the great. The world is your oyster. It was. It city was. City is city. Yeah. Living out of a suitcase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. And for someone Exciting. who hadn't traveled a lot at oh that point, this was just amazing. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And so then um, I started working more teaching, but then uh, someone approached me and said, you know, we'd like for you to assume a management role. And in order to do that, though, you have to move to the headquarters, which were in Dallas, Texas. And uh, so I moved to Dallas <laughs> and uh, I headed up the project and it was a lot of fun. Woo! It was a lot of fun and um, got to meet a lot of great people there. We were actually subcontractors on a Unisys Corporation contract. Big. And it was um, so I negotiated a follow on contract when that contract ended. And then my boss had moved to a startup company in Florida. And 
when I was, uh, he, when he was there, <clears throat> he calls me up and he's like, you know, I need my number two again. Um, cause I worked for him in Dallas. And so I said, okay, I'm, I'm going. So I moved to Fort Lauderdale and, uh, worked for a startup company that was focused on working with higher education institutions, Notre Dame, Duke, Broward Community College. So um, folks that were looking to outsource the IT operation, um, teaching IT certifications. And so I headed up, uh, I was the director of curriculum. And that was my first exposure to higher education. And it was really, uh, it was really interesting and exciting. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I had sort of a split decision. I, I had an offer to go to Chicago, continue to move up the career ladder in the corporate sector, or I could go to, back to New York to my alma mater and I could head up uh, workforce development uh, in the IT certification world uh, for them. And uh, it was something different. I like new challenges. I uh, wanted to try it. Back to so, the city. Back to the city. So, um, so anyway, I I worked there, and while I was there, the world changed, and online learning became more prevalent. And so yeah. they uh, they said, "Well, you're a techie, so you understand this stuff. Would you mind helping to build the first undergraduate online degree?" And so for uh, for Marist College. And so I, I did that and it was exciting, a lot of fun. I got a chance to work with faculty um, in uh, particular areas that were interested in, in putting their courses online to, to put together a degree program. And, and how was the, I wanna just step back because I want people to really kind of understand how significant this is, right? Yeah. Because this is what year? This is uh, 1999, 2000 that I went there. So it's probably right. about 2002. So yeah. this is probably the beginning it's of the, beginning. the yes. ground floor yes. of online learning, right? Yes. I mean, today everybody thinks, oh, online, yeah. the internet, yeah. it's all, exactly. uh, you know, people, I came into my business 1979, there was no computers, you know, 1980 was the first PC, but you know, 10 years later, you're talking about putting everything online. Yeah. How did the teachers react? Because I would think, you know, they're like, okay, I have a classroom. I have people in front yeah. of me. I have a curriculum. This is who I am. Yeah. And now you're going to put this online. What will this do to me? How do I fit in? Yeah. Is there any of that yeah. tension? Yeah, it was, it was a, a new modality, a new classroom. Yeah. And so therefore it created excitement for a few and a lot of apprehension for a lot of people. Like resistance, yes, right? Like exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, there were a lot of perceptions then, still a little bit today, but, but back then there was, you know, I suppose with any disruptive innovation in any sector, hmm. right, you're going to have people who sort of feel like it's destroying the status quo. And, and especially, pardon me, yeah. as an outside entrepreneur looking in and as a trustee here, and trying to get a sense of how teachers feel and unions and everything that we have to deal with where everything is protected. Yeah. How do you, how do you take that handcuff and protection off? Although that was a private school. That was a private school. So you had more freedom. But the world was still changing at the public schools as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was, um, well, it was fun and exciting because I do have a good eye for future trends. That's where I spend a lot of my time thinking mm -hmm. about how to prepare for the future. 
And so I could see that the world was changing, that it was, it was becoming more embraced, but it was still the front end. And as you said, the front end of technology innovations, you know, is when you're going to get a lot of resistance. Um, so I started working first with faculty who were willing to embrace it. And, um, and then we went to the sort of middle 50%. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we would, you know, work with some of the laggards, you know, who, so eventually the world changed that other folks started to embrace this. But, you know, anytime you're, you're working and you know, this as an entrepreneurial effort, you know, you start with where the energy is. So I worked with faculty that said, yeah, I'm open to trying something new and um, help me do this. So they would bring the content expertise of the disciplines that they taught and I would bring the technical expertise and the understanding of pedagogy from a cyber cyberspace perspective and an adult Pedagogy learning <laughs> from a cyberspace perspective. Yeah. Wow, I love yeah. That. Cause it was different. Yeah. And keep in mind the technology what does pedagogy mean, well, it's, it's focusing on, um, the study of how you actually teach and learn. Okay. Um, so, you so know, really how you break, design curriculum, really breaking it down yes. so you can deliver it vis-a-vis -vis yeah. this medium. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have a great deal of respect for our faculty wow. because um, they focus on trying to figure out how they design their curriculum to meet the needs of the learners in their classroom. And when you think about how diverse our population is, when you think of how diverse the classes are, that can be a tough uh, task, right? To, yeah. to build a curriculum that works for everybody. And so they put a, a lot of time and energy into figuring out, you know, understanding learning design of the curriculum, understanding group dynamics, understanding the challenges that students bring outside of the classroom, understanding scholarly literature and what works in their discipline. There's so many elements that go into the teaching and learning process that um, people don't see. They just see, you know, how it's, a great it, class it, works. Exactly. Yeah. It's like putting yeah. on a show. Yeah. Well, the show goes up. Exactly. I don't see all the work backstage. Exactly. It's a good so, comparison. So this is incredible especially for me, because it's so revealing of who you are now. And I've been, you know, working around you for the last couple of years. Let's, how did you get to this place? Let's jump forward, you know. Yeah, Here sure. you are, yeah. president of Holyoke Community College, yeah. taking on this amazing institution in an environment of tough learning with technology and, you know, serving the population we serve. How, how did that happen? How did I get here? I'm so thrilled you're here. But yeah, 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 yeah. But so, what? so the, the, uh, the quick version of the story, cause we'd be here all day, uh, <laughs> is, um, I, I'm was, okay with that. I was fortunate to, um, to land at a community college in, in my next college after that. And I really, really loved understanding how a community college works. And I had an appreciation for community colleges, but my appreciation just excelled su substantially by working in one and really seeing the nuances of, of the community work uh, that community colleges do, understanding the dynamics of the population, um, serving a region. And- uh, It's a mandate it, because it's, this is state funded. It's absolutely to, crucial. Yes. 
to the region. Let's talk about that. I mean, it's crucial to the region. It's making available education to people like yourself who are low income, poor, uh, didn't graduate, went maybe off into the workforce or trying to come back, went into the military or trying to come back, went into, and it's serving a community yep. and a need that people just, I didn't even understand yeah. until I got involved Yeah, and, and pulled the curtain back. And of course now I'm passionate about what you do and what this institution does. We serve young students via our summer camps. We serve high school students with our partnership with the high schools we serve college educated students that are traditional age coming back. We serve adult learners who are looking, maybe they started some college and have no degree or they never went to college and now they're coming back. They're coming to college at 45. Uh, we serve older citizens that are looking for personal enrichment and just wanting to keep their brains active. Right, and, um, and you've reached out into the community and developed with MGM. So yes. let's talk a little bit about those yeah. great things that you've done with the culinary school, the gambling school, now potential camp. So talk a little bit about. Yeah, so a big piece of the work that we do is is actually um, for and in support of the community. So when we when we revised our mission statement and it went from 479 words down to three, it's educate, inspire, connect. Educate, inspire, connect. Yeah. Yes. And educate is absolutely critical because we focus on the academic rigor and ensuring that the students that we educate can go wherever they want to go, especially our transfer students. Right. And we, you know, we have students who take advantage of coming to a community college, having that um, small class experience, more affordable experience, and then going on and transferring to some of the best colleges in the nation and in our region. Or my stepson who came here and then decided, you know what, I'm going to the Air Force and now he's in intelligence. But yeah. without that background, he would have never ended up in intelligence in the Air Force. Yeah. 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 For a lot of students, they say, you know, this is sort of where I found myself in my path. Yeah. And then by so the time important. they get to so UMass Amherst and Smith and Mount Holyoke and all the wonderful Wesleyan institution, and, Bay you know, Path. Yeah. And, yes, exactly. Uh, Elms College, you know, Westfield State University. By the time they get there, um, they have a better sense of where they're headed and how to get there. Yeah. And that's the piece that we do. But um, and then Inspire is a really a reflection of the community that we serve. You know, community, Holyoke specifically, the city is 50% Latinx. And um, and when you think about the levels of poverty in our region, huge. But it's both Holyoke and Springfield, but generally in Hamden County, um, we serve some of the poorest areas in the entire Commonwealth. And so the relentless support and encouragement and kindness that is needed to be able to help them be successful is, um, is how we are able to cultivate some success with them. And then also uh, connect, and that's right. what you were so getting educate, at. Educate, inspire, and connect. Yes, yep. and, and connect is really about that community piece and that connection to employers 
and connected to the community at large. And, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to create some good partnerships, not only with the educational partners, our community colleges, and also our four-year, but also with employers. And so MGM Springfield coming into this region, um, we partnered with Springfield Technical Community College on creating a gaming school, the Massachusetts Casino Careers Training Institute, MCCTI, yeah. Yeah. to be able to support uh, their need for hiring folks uh, who are uh, in the gaming aspect of the world. And then also um, we built our HCC MGM Culinary Arts Amazing. Institute. Right in downtown Holyoke. Right in downtown right Holyoke. In the heart of the city. Beautiful facility, right on the corner of Race and Appleton such Street. Such a testimony to you. Well, and I, I think to the college and, well, and the region. It's, but, but your vision. Well, this is a project, uh, as many projects do, uh, that uh, stemmed many, many years before I got here. Um, I was fortunate to be able to lead us through the construction phase uh, to, uh, to opening the doors. Um, but I have to definitely give credit to uh, the folks before I even arrived um, and laying the great groundwork for that. But the great thing about our Culinary Arts Institute is the work we're doing with the hospitality and food industry. Which so MGM Springfield, huge. but also all of the major every hotel, food service. Every, exactly. Like food, hotel, everything. It's yeah. Enormous. Yeah. And as we work to build this, continue to work on making this a, a destination for, for tourism, right. then obviously the restaurant business is absolutely critical to that. Yeah. yeah. And then the last piece in um, being involved in it is the cannabis industry, which pros and cons whatever you like to say, Holyoke is the seed of that. Yeah. Um, it's becoming the Amsterdam. I like to tell people it's going to be the Amsterdam of Massachusetts. And it's an industry that is just growing so rapidly. And so you've stepped into that by creating these relationships to create courses and curriculum in an industry that's at the beginning stages, which is unbelievable. Yeah. <clears throat> unbelievable. I mean, it's, to me, that's, that's the epitome of risk taking and taking advantage of opportunity together. And it's in support of the community. And Holyoke, as you said, has really taken an interest, particularly there's others, other cities in the region, but Holyoke is specifically really looking at um, how to uh, be a distributor and cultivate, repurpose some of these old factories downtown yep. um, for new uses. And uh, so um, we believe that um, the industry is best served by actually having formal training. And so uh, being able to partner with C3RN and others to be able to approach this topic responsibly is really critical. So uh, we, uh, for the record, we don't have any cannabis on training or in the curriculum. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, we don't, I don't have any, yeah. anything nope, here that's that an you can, that important disclosure. not going to be, no, but, but um, this is an industry that's going across the U.S. and eventually the federal government will get to it. And this is what, I, this is the way I say it to people. I got involved in it when I heard the CEO of a company say the reason they got involved was to end the opioid crisis in America. And as far as I'm concerned, and I told this to Richie Neal, our local congressman, name me one person who's OD'd on cannabis oil. You can't. 
Well, and I think that we really want to focus on making sure that uh, the industry um, is approached in a very responsible way. Exactly. And, um, you know, this is new for Massachusetts. And so, you know, even though we can learn from other states that um, have made this legal before us, uh, there's still a lot that, you know, we have to figure out what works for our region and so yep. forth. And so I, I feel like with the Cannabis Control Commission and, you know, we have some good measures to make sure that right. we're approaching this it, it's responsibly. It's a partnership with the state that's doing it right. So yeah. let's, in yeah. the time that we have, just yeah. looking out into the future. Yeah. As president of HCC and just in your, your what do you see? What are you most excited about? Right now, I'm really, really excited about the increased focus on equity um, across the state. Um, our higher education, um, the Board of Higher Education and the Department of Higher Education, you know, are really um, making equity the number one priority. Equity and, meaning what for our um, viewers? Making sure that um, we can have success for all students. Because if you look at the data, the students who are non-white are um, not as successful as our white students. And so um, equity is about equalizing that playing field and ensuring that everybody can get the services and support that they need um, to cultivate success. At the end of the day, we want everybody, regardless of who you are, to be able to come here and be successful and allow education to transform their lives. And so equity is about making sure that we can do that for all students. Wow. And so given the population that we serve, that's a priority for HCC as well. And, and we have uh, a lot of measures built into our strategic plan that are focused on around equity. Right. So, um, and they're even inspire, connect equitably. Yes, right? exactly. And add, success for all. Add, we should add, we should add the equity piece to that, right? Yeah. I think when we start to think about the future as well, though, we're, we're really looking at, um, other disruptive forces that I think are starting to impact our world and will continue to in a big way, like, um, automation, um, we offer uh, non-credit drone classes, you know, and being able to, you know, help people embrace uh, another layer of technology innovations in our society. So great. All right. So we close with questions that I ask everybody that I interview. Okay. So I'm going to answer right. these questions. Okay. What's your favorite word? My favorite word. Right now, I would say unlearning. What's your least favorite word? My least favorite phrase is, we, um, it can't be done. It can't be done, okay. What turns you on? Opportunities and challenges, looking for a way for us to make a really big impact in this region. Great, and what turns you off? Well, stagnation, resistance. Okay. Although resistance has a positive role too. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What's your favorite curse word? I don't have a curse word that is my favorite. <laughs> you just like them all. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, what occupation other than yours would you absolutely love to do? Um... Well, I certainly started off saying that one of the things I wanted to be was an industrial organizational psychologist. So I love that. 
I love that field. Uh, but if you're asking me like what I might want to do in retirement or something, I would love, I, I went on a cruise and I, um, earlier this year and I went ATVing in Turks and Caicos <laughs> and I just said, I would love that job. Just taking people on ATVs and it. talking to them about their region in that case. Um, so much fun. So much fun. I love that kind of adventure. Now, what occupation other than yours would you absolutely hate to do? What would I hate to do? Any job that was the same every day. Such as? I, I would find any job that is the like, same every day. Right. Exactly. Some industrial. Yep. Exactly. The, right. Yep. That Something kind of that just no thought. I just, I show up. I know exactly what's going to happen. And I, and then I go home No. And if heaven existed, what would you like to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? You used your time wisely. Very nice. And what's your favorite song? My favorite song. Um, I, I just love music. I don't think I have a favorite song. First one that pops I in your head. show you my playlist. Um, so I like Pink as an artist. Okay. So. And what would be? But um, yeah, I just have a lot of diversity. I don't really have one that stands out. Okay. Well, we got to get you back to class. All right. So yes. as you're heading back to class and we're heading back to class, you can hum Pink and I'll hum <laughs> something else and we'll say Thank you so much. Thank you for the amazing work you do here for all the students at ACC, for the community, Thank for you. the region, and for just the sheer force of nature that you are every day. We are so blessed. Well, and thank you so much for being a trustee who is engaged and really interested in the work here and very supportive. Um, we couldn't do this without the work of our trustees, as well as our faculty, our staff, oh, and incredible. of course, the superstars which are our students. Yeah, one of them is right behind the one camera. One of them is right behind, a great <laughs> success story. They're all over the place. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going out with Pink, everybody.